0: People a strange When you're a stranger, faces look ugly When you're alone Women sing wicked when you're unwanted streets are uneven when you're down When you're strange faces come out of the rain When you're strange no one Welcome back to the American Writers 100 pages at a time podcast. Now, in this episode, I will be looking at the second half of Edgar Huntley by Charles Brockton Brown. This will also be finishing up my, my little series on Charles Brockton Brown. We've looked at Wheeland, Arthur Mervyn, and we finished it up with Edgar Huntley. That's not all the novels he wrote. There was a few others that aren't collected in the Library of American Edition. I don't know why they chose these three. These, I guess, are the most famous, the most popular, the most likely to be to get the attention of literary critics. But I think there was a handful of others. He didn't live very long, actually, Charles Brockton Brown. He died He died at around 40 years of age in 1810. Now, the three novels we've looked at were all published in a three-year period from, from 1780, 1798 to, to 1800, which was when um, Edgar Huntley was uh, published. And he wrote a few things after that, but um, this is kind of the bulk of his, his career and the works he's most well-known for. So anyway, we're just going to finish up with uh, the second half of Edgar Huntley, and then I'll talk about some of the major themes of the novel and where I think this novel may fit into, to, you know, American history and some of the themes of early American history, and and that'll be it. So where we left off, uh, Edgar Huntley has been, ch- you know, he was chasing down the person he thinks murdered his friend Waldengrave. And um, he kind of narrows it down to this sleepwalking man who's behaving very strangely. He's one of the only foreigners in in the town, a servant named Clithero. He tracks down Clithero and eventually gets a story out of him, a confession of sorts about how he killed his, back in England, he killed his mistress's brother and then almost killed her in kind of a fit of madness and then he fled to America. So he confessed, but he confessed to the wrong, wrong crime. Uh, Edgar Huntley then starts to worry about him as Clithero kind of runs off into the woods and he spends a bunch of time trying to chase him down in the wilderness. So we get these wonderful scenes of of these dark caves, of this wilderness, of kind of this empty emptiness of the American frontier at the time. Now, obviously, we know that this frontier wasn't empty. It was populated by a civilization that had been there for for many, many hundreds of years. But again, from this kind of American point of view, the Indians were part of that that nature and a threatening part of that nature. We uh, Edgar Huntley gets attacked by a panther to kind of articulate how dangerous it is. There's also the implied threat of weather, the implied threat of just kind of the physical features of the terrain, pits and valleys and mountains and dark caves. There's the physical threat of, of hunger, as alluded to, and all this is is in the backdrop. He's trying to find Cliff Arrow. he while. Seaturing around Clotherell's stuff, though, he does find a manuscript that belongs to his old mistress, the Mrs. Uh, Lorimer. Now, there's an interesting connection between Lorimer and Edgar Huntley in that um, Edgar Huntley's teacher, Sarsfield, is was Lorimer's like, lover for, for many years, and he was kind of an East India country um, uh, company adventurer for, for some time in his, in his career. So he's a bit of an action hero in his own right. So where we left off is he kind of... Uh, Stopped searching for Clothero for a while, settled back into his life, and then a man named Weymouth comes. And Weymouth claims that Waldengrave, who's now dead, the, that friend of Arthur Huntley who died, Edgar Huntley is now running his estate, but the claim is that he was left a bunch of money uh, in safekeeping. Unfortunately, there's no will. And Waldengrave didn't leave a will identifying this money as, as belonging to to Weymouth, so there's really no evidence of this claim. And that's, that's where we... we 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 leave off that way. The way most claims are very difficult to to prove, and so that's where we'll pick up in chapter fifteen. And We'll just go through the end of the novel and then wrap it up with some of what I think are the major themes and importance of this of this story. Now, there's a lot of moralism in this in this chapter. There's the morality of returning property to its rightful owner, which the author I think and certainly Edgar Huntley seems to accept. Unfortunately, there's no evidence that it is. So there's the, the possibility that he's being um, swindled in some way. Now, Weymouth starts to go into the story about why he needs the money. And he talks about the poverty and misery of his family for, for quite a while. It's actually a couple pages where he goes into this, this history of his family and their misery and why they need the money so badly. And we got a little sum up, something summed up here about the fate of wanderers. In fact, this novel has several wanderers. It has Edgar Huntley, who's wandering in the woods, Clothera, who's wandered across the Atlantic, Sarsfield is a wanderer. Um, Arthur Waite, the, the, the man that Clitheroe killed back in back in Britain, is also a wanderer. And here's what uh, Weymouth says about wandering. Maybe it's Edgar Huntley. I think it's Edgar Huntley here. He says, Quote, Is this a lot of those who wander from their rustic homes in search of fortune? Our countrymen are prone to enterprise and are scattered over every sea and every land in pursuit of that wealth which will not screen them from disease or infirmity, which is missed." much oftener than found, and which, when gained, by no means compensates them for the hardship and vicissitudes endured by the pursuit. End quote. So it's a bit of a warning about being too much of a, of a wanderer in, a, in a, an increasingly global world. right? And I think one thing we can see with all these uh, Charles Brockton Brown novels is that they're set in a kind of an expanding world. I think Wheeland might be the most intimate of these, but both Edgar Huntley and Arthur Mervyn are really kind of sprawling tales where there's a lot of uh, things connected to the broader Atlantic world. But even Wieland has those kind of Atlantic connections in the character of Carwin, uh, and the, the Whelan's family's connections back to, to Europe and, and things like that. Now, ultimately, Edgar Huntley comes to the conclusion that he has a moral burden of returning this money. You know, he has to err on the side of, of justice here. And so he writes to Mrs. Waldengrave, the you know, the Miss Waldengrave, the sister of the friend, telling her that they must give this money to to this this Waymouth. Now this this plot line is never resolved. We never hear if the money is actually given or anything. And this is very a bit uncharacteristic of, of Charles Brockton Brown. He seems to always want to you know wrap up these these um these lines. But the conclusion that he comes to here has a lot to do with the work ethic, which is of course a common thing we saw in Arthur Mervyn. And he comes to the conclusion that poverty is less of a sin than theft. And so if there's the chance of theft being involved in keeping this money, then you have to give the money back. You have to err on the side of of justice. So that's the end of chapter 15. And from this point on, the novel shifts very radically into a, a pretty brutal tale of frontier violence. And I don't know if we need to go blow by blow, but there's so much interesting stuff in the second half of, of the story. But I'll try to give you some of the highlights that I noticed and, and I was really drawn by. Um, it's almost like Brown like dropped his pen, came back to this novel later and started writing in a completely different tale almost. It's, it's really kind of a bizarre shift um, in in the story. And, and the fact that he completely cuts off a previous plot line, which, is given a, quite a bit of weight, the middle part of the novel is, is, is striking. There is a transition in the narrative, though. Of course, the whole thing is a letter that Edgar Huntley is writing to his fiancée, and he writes, Here, my friend, thou must permit me to pause. The following incidents are of a kind to which the most ardent intervention has never conceived a parallel. Fortune, in her most wayward mode, could scarcely be suspected of an influence like this. This scene was pregnant with astonishment and horror. I cannot even now recall it without reviving dismay and confusion at what I then experienced, and what we're going to see is he basically becomes a monster. He becomes the worst of frontier violence, and you could argue that he was was forced upon him. That was put in a situation that was that he was forced to kind of uh, be reduced to his most violent impulses. But nevertheless, it's you know it's it's a pretty horrific change in his character, Um, and he kind of delays jumping into the story for a while because it's so fearful for them. And then he relates that. One day, he just simply woke up in a cave someday. And so it turns out he's sleepwalking, too, just like Clithero sleepwalking. So it's odd enough to have one person sleepwalking. Now we actually have two people sleepwalking, including our narrator, who doesn't seem to really know that. And he starts to talk about his fears of being buried alive, you know, waking up in a cave, essentially complete darkness. And he actually feels he's been in, he's kind of actually not just in a cave, but like in a pit. So he's kind of cramped in, and he actually feels that he's confined sort of like a like a coffin. Quote, my state of full tumour and confusion and my attention were incessantly divided between my painful sensations and my feverish dreams. So he finally kind of gets his bearings, finds out where he is, and he starts trying to crawl out of this pit, out of the scaling, this pit walls, trying to get up there. And while he gets up there, he gets attacked by a panther again. That happened. It's happened earlier, so it's not the... The only one, I'll, I guess, I'm not sure what the local animals would have been there. A panther, of course, is any roaring big cat. I think that's the definition of it. And of course, we have North American versions and Eurasian versions and, and, and African versions of, of panthers. I don't know what it would have been in North America at the time in this, this part of the eastern coast and on this frontier. But we talked about in the last episode how there's this narrative... Here of the eradication of the Panthers from this frontier region, and there's bounties on them. And We saw this all actually all the way back in The Pioneers by James Fenimore Cooper. Actually, that novel was written after uh, Charles Brockton Brown, but it's, it's set a little bit earlier than the events of this novel. And he, he, anyway, he gets up there and he kills the panther, and then he starts to, like, he, this is his kind of first act of total brut- brutality. He, he killed a panther before, but it kind of... He was fighting it and it sort of fell into the, the pit. He didn't actually like get his hands that dirty with it. In this case, he actually not only kills the panther, but he starts to eat it. He's, he has this ravaging hunger and he starts to like feast on the raw flesh of this, this panther. And then he passes out and he wakes up thirsty and he starts to follow the sound of waters. And as he's doing this, he eventually gets to a fireplace. So he runs a. Com- he comes across his fireplace, and then he sees this party of Indians, and there's four of them there. And then Arthur, uh, not Arthur, <laughs> not Arthur Edgar Huntley, goes into a a prolonged kind of discussion here of of Indian wars and the wars on the frontier that have been going on for for quite a while in this this frontier region. In fact, he seems to have some family history connected to this because. Uh, his father's house was also on the frontier. Quote, I have reason to remember the event. My father's house was placed on the verge of the solitude. Eight of these assassins assailed in the dead of night. My parents and an infant child were murdered in their beds. The house was pillaged and then burned to the ground. Happily, myself and my two sisters were brought up on a visit. The preceding day, there had been fixed for a return on our father's house, but a storm occurred which made it dangerous to cross the river and by obliging us to defer our journey, rescued us from captivity or death. Most men are haunted by some species of terror or antipathy, which they are, for the most part, able to trace to some incident which befell them in the early years. You will not be surprised at the fate of my parents and the sight of this body and one of the savage band, who in the pursuit that was made after them was overtaken and killed should produce lasting and terrific images in my fancy. I never looked upon or called upon the image of a savage without shuddering. Um, so here is Edgar Huntley's justification for his following actions, at least partially. He will always go back to this idea that he's kind of out of his mind. He doesn't know what he is or he's been forced into action. But there does seem to be a narrative here of, of, of revenge. And there's a motive for his revenge against the Indians. They killed his parents uh, and his infant sibling. right? So he goes there and he's they're sleeping. These eight Indians, four Indians are sleeping. So he tries to steal one of their rifles. And he sees a captive woman there, and he feels he can't really save her, so he leaves, but uh, later on he gets into a fight with another Indian that's in the area, killing him, and he restates his moral scruples about murder, but at the same time he thinks he didn't really have a choice in the matter. Quote, I have never taken the life of a human creature. On this head I have indeed entertained somewhat of religious scruples. These scruples not forbid me to defend myself, but they made me cautious or reluctant to decide. Though they could not withhold, withhold my hand, when urged by a necessity like this, they were sufficient to make me look back upon the deed with remorse and dismay. Well, he decides to go back for the girl. And this is the beginning of chapter 18. He decides to go back for the girl, uh, feeling guilt over killing the Indian, feeling guilt over leaving her behind. So he decides to go to, and he's able to rescue her from the, the Indian band. And then she tells her story. Uh, Charles Brockton Brown always loves to do this. He loves to have stories embedded into stories and, and all those um, background tales. But she tells, basically her story is that the Indians killed her entire family. So we're back to this, this narrative of the Indians basically as brutal savages just slaughtering people on the frontier. Now, I'm not exactly sure when this novel is Set the exact year, um, but of course, during the Re- American Revolutionary War, there was a lot of frontier violence. This was, they were of course at war. Most of these Indian uh, nations were allied with the British, and so it was kind of a wartime posture. So a lot of these frontier towns were attacked during the the American Revolution, and you know, of course, if you study American history, you know this goes back. You know, whenever there was conflicts often this led to indian raids and people becoming being taken as captive and, and sometimes outright murdered and this becomes part of the motif of of the american view of the indian as the, like the violent savage right? now the europeans you know like the enlightenment thinkers of the, of europe they had that like noble savage idea they they weren't living close on the frontier experiencing this kind of frontier violence but one thing i think to brown's credit here is he acknowledges that this violence went both ways that it was a a mutual It was a mutual violence. We see bands of white people trying to hunt down Indians. At the same time, we see Indians hunting, hunting white people. Now, we also get a discussion here about the gun that he's taken. The gun he took is actually, he recognizes the gun. It's his uncle's gun. So then he goes into this whole speculation about what happened to his own family. And he comes to the conclusion that, His uncle, quote, my uncle and my sisters have been murdered. The dwelling had been pillaged and this had been part of the plunder. Defenseless and asleep, they were assailed by these inexorable enemies and I, who ought to have been their protector and champion, was removed to an immeasurable distance and was disabled by some accursed chance from affording them the succor when they needed it. End quote. So he feels extra bit of guilt for not being there to protect them. But again, this is out of character for Edgar Huntley from how we met him. We meet him as basically a kind of a, just a normal guy right maybe living on a frontier of america but basically just just a just a guy right um maybe a bit bookish he's writing these long letters and of course um, about to be married just a normal person but here he's saying that he's the defender he's supposed to be the protector so he's supposed to arm up and we learn here he's able to so i don't know how much of this was training and, and how much of his our previous impression of him was was a lie right it does seem he's pretty badass that's what i'm trying to say and that, that seems to come from somewhere. I, I don't know. We always see this in movies, right, where s- someone who's just a normal guy in the right situation become, you know, brutal. But I don't know how often that happens in reality. I think it's, you know, most people are kind of bound by the, the limits of their, of their training. So um, now while they're sleeping, after, after the rescue, they're, they're still kind of out there in the middle of nowhere. And she's sleeping, and, and this Indian approaches and he hides away while the indian approaches and then the indians take the girl and then edgar is forced to fight fight the indians and he's really becoming pretty badass as i'm suggesting here uh, you know able to take on whole bands of of, of trained warriors At the beginning of chapter 19 he, he starts to really think about where this violence comes from and and he starts to look inside of himself and he's really reflecting and of course he's doing this in a letter written sometime after the events but he's trying to reflect on what has what has made him capable of this violence quote think not that I relate these events with exultation or tranquility all my education and the habits of my life tended to unfit me for a contest in a scene like this but I was not governed by a soul which usually regulates my conduct I had imbibed from the unparalleled events which had lately happened a spirit vengeful unrelenting and ferocious Later on, my anguish was mingled with astonishment. This, in spite of the force and uniformity with which my senses were impressed by external objects, the transition I had undergone was so wild and inexplicable that I had performed all that I had performed, all that I had witnessed since my egress from the pit, was so contradictory to pre- pre- precedent events that I still cling to the belief that my thoughts were confused by delirium. From these reveries, I was at length recalled by the groans of the girl who lay near me on the ground. So he rescues the girl again, but he does it through this, this act of, of brutal violence. Now, while he's there, he, he kind of passes out and falls asleep, I guess exhausted from his exertions. And then he, when he wakes up, he wakes up with a dead Indian. Now, later on in the chapter, he gets in another fight with an Indian wounding him quite uh, horrifically. And then he's forced to like put him out of his misery And here's the way Edgar Huntley describes it. But there was one way to end them. To kill them outright was the dictate of compassion and of duty. I hastily returned and once more leveled my piece at his head. It was a loathsome obligation and was performed with unconquerable reluctance. Thus to assault and to mangle the body of an enemy, already prostrate and powerless, was an act worthy of abhorrence. Yet it was, in this case, prescribed by pity. My faltering hand rendered the second bolt ineffectual. One expedient still more detestable remained. Having gone thus far, it would have been inhuman to stop short. His heart might easily be pierced by the bayonet, and the struggles would cease. This cruel task of, of this task of cruel lenity was at length finished. Unquote. So it's never described that he actually stabs this Indian through the heart with his with his bayonet, because he I guess he didn't have another bullet. So all pretty nasty stuff. And I, I think you know, he's just laying in the the, the the nature of this frontier, these conflicts and how bloody and personal and, and intimate they, they got, right? All these people have personal ties. You know, these, these are close-knit communities, right? Maybe spread out a little bit, but everyone knows each other, right? And the, the Indians who attacked his father, he, he sees in, the, 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 in this band of Indians before him. Um, in chapter 20, then, there, he's still wandering about, and he finds the house of a frontier woman and so he's finally kind of getting back to civilization but it's still way out in the frontier it's, it's it's way back there in this kind of danger zone where where indian attacks are quite common and he finds this house of this woman and she reports that men are looking for somebody and edgar thinks that it's people looking for for him and explain she explains that they went to the hut of another person a woman named old deb and she's an Indian woman. She's she's Leni Lenape too, as are all these Indians that are attacking them. But she's kind of a kind of almost like a frontier kind of witch woman. I guess she doesn't really have any present. They have any magical powers, but she's an old woman living alone in the woods with, with dogs. She's a dog lady, an old dog lady, not a, not a cat lady in this case. Um, but here's how the animals are described. These animals differed in nothing from their kinsmen of the forest. Essentially, it's saying they're wolves but in their attachment and obedience to their mistress. She governed them with absolute sway. They were her servants and protectors and attended her person or guarded her threshold agreeably to her directions. She fed them with corn and they supplied her and themselves with meat by hunting squirrels, raccoons, and rabbits. And so they're completely isolated from them. She just like picks weeds uh, from... She just grows her own corn. She spends her days like plucking weeds um, and grinding her own grain and then raising these... These wolf dogs. And so she's but she's really super old. And you know, she's kind of actually a remnant of an Indian tribe that had kind of moved moved on and left her behind. And, and she's kind of on the borderline between white civilization and what's left of the Indians of of the region. Basically she's kind of an add-on to the frontier. And so everyone sort of knows about her. And she, she's kind of a famous old woman. They're famous for her weird dogs. And, and Edgar Huntley knows her whole story and is able to uh, relate it here to his fiance. So without really anywhere to go at this point, um, he decides just to go to return to his uncles to check on them. And he's in pretty poor shape by this point in the story. He's done all these murders, all this violence. He's been out in the woods for a long time. I think the only thing he's had to eat was like this raw jag- this raw panther meat. Um, So he's in hard shape, but he's still trying to go on to find his his uncle's place. And in Chapter 21, we we have him just kind of walking through the mountains. And again, we get these beautiful landscape scenes. It's almost like a Hudson River Valley school painting, almost, if you've seen those paintings from early American uh, art history, right? There's these panoramic views of the American uh, frontier and wilderness. We get more of that here and you know i just am kind of stunned that's a huge part of this novel and it's it's you don't see it so much in, in the others cuz they're not frontier novels edgar huntley is a no sorry uh, arthur mervyn is a novel of the city Wheeland is more like the pastoral uh, settlement like on an estate this is really a novel of of the frontier and we get these beautiful descriptions of the of the forests the mountains the valleys the caves and all that and it it really did remind me of a of a hudson valley school painting well, he's walking through the, the woods and the mountains and he finally gets off kind of the road and he finds he's in a tough spot. He needs to sort of jump into the river to continue on. And, but he sees these Indians there and he ends up having to jump in the river, not just to move on, but to escape from, from the Indians. And there's a firefight while he's escaping. And as, as chapter 21 ends, he's literally kind of swimming away while, while bullets are zooming past him in the, in the air. So once more, Edgar Huntley falls into this panic and this fear that he's basically going sort of fight to for fight for his own survival in the midst of all these savages in the wilderness. Quote, From these I was delivered only to be thrown into the midst of savages, to wage an endless and hopeless war with adepts and killing, the, the, with appetites that long to feast upon my balls and to quaff my heart's blood. From these likewise out where I rescued, but merely to perish in the gulfs of the river, to welter upon unvisited shores, or to be washed far away from curiosity or pity Um, but from here he's finally able to make his way to another farmhouse another frontier house and it doesn't seem to be anyone's there so he just walks in you know for some shelter and then he, he hears this very very violent voice shouting out and here we get a little interesting scene of kind of frontier domestic violence um and violence against women which i think is kind of a theme throughout uh at Charles Brockton Brown's Tales. I, I, I almost regret I haven't said enough about it. I'll let you think about it. You know, Wheeland, you have a, a man murdering his, his wife uh, and children. We have another man who's violently jealous uh, just because he heard a woman talking uh, about another man or talking with another man. In, in Arthur Mervyn, we have case after case of violence against women, particularly with Clemenza Lodi, who is raped and murdered. There's other examples of it in that story as well. Um, here, from this, we, we see Indians engaging in violence against women, capturing them, and doing who knows what to them. Uh, and here we have a household, violence in the household. Here's what he, uh, he hears when he, when he comes to the house. Isn't you, Peg? Damn you straight away now. I tell you, stay away, or by God, I'll cut your throat, I will. And then Edgar Huntley narrates that he continued to mutter and swear but without coherence or distinction these were the accents of drunkenness and denoted a wild and ruffian life they were little in unison with the external appearances of the mansion and blasted all the hopes i had of forming a meeting under this roof with gentleness and hospitality we later learned that this is the selby farm the selby farm he i think he figures out later maybe it's a Selby farm or he finally is able to put it together and this is an infamously, famously violent man. Again, we get with the idea that everyone sort of knows each other in the frontier, even though people are spread out. It's, a, it's relatively a small number of people living in this region. Um, but he leaves uh, this house, thinking he can't get any sucker there, and he finds a dead Indian. The suggestion here is that this frontier violence is more generalized than just Edgar Huntley going nuts on, on the Indians that he ran into after waking up in a cave. He, it's other, other, more fighting is going on and that he's kind of in the midst of all that. Um, so in the next chapter, this is 23, he learns from some people that that the Huntleys, meaning his uncle and his sisters, have been killed and, and just one seemed to have escaped. Now, this turns out to be not an entirely truthful report. But that's the report he gets, and we get this idea of just how confused the news is in this frontier region during these Indian attacks. No one quite knows what's going on. There's a lot of rumor and innuendo. But he learns from someone that the Huntleys have been killed. And so he goes finally to see the family house. He goes to see this family house. He goes in, and there was recent action here, but no people. And he goes upstairs, and he looks around, and he finds Waldengrave's letters. These were the things that were missing before. Uh, he... So wait, this isn't the uncle's house. This is just a familiar house he's familiar with. But he finds Waldengrave's letters there. Now, in his uncle's house back at home, he was looking for Waldengrave's letters because he wanted to publish them into a book of his theological speculations. And he couldn't find them, and he wondered who would steal them. But now they're, they're suddenly here, so that's a bit strange. Um, and then finally a stranger arrives, and it's, it's Sarsfield, his old teacher. Now, we have been introduced to Sarsfield earlier in the story through Clithoral's tale and then edgar says well i know this guy he was my like tutor right but he was also the lover of this mrs Lorimer, who was Clothero's uh mistress back at, back in england and so they finally meet up and, and and are reunited and this brings us to kind of the climax of the novel the final moments but first we got to hear Sar- Sar- sarsfield's story about what has been going on with him and why he enters the tale at this point So in Chapter 24, Sarsfield's story begins, and he says that he's seen Edgar dead a couple times already, right? And basically, he confesses that he's been following Edgar Huntley into the woods, and and that he has been mistaken as an Indian by Edgar Huntley at various times. Now, Edgar's sisters are alive, it seems, and there's a lot of confusion about what's been going on. Now, it does seem that Edgar Huntley's uncle is dead, and this is something Sarsfield is able to relate, but... You know, we get this really confusing narrative early on, which just kind of confuses things even more than they already are. But then Sarsfield goes more directly into his story. And he says he saw Edgar walking around once when he was out in the woods. But Edgar just walked past him. Now, this is the exact inverse of what happened earlier between Clithero and Edgar Huntley, where Edgar was walking and he saw this strange guy walk past him. And it turns out he was sleepwalking because Edgar was sleepwalking at this point and, and he said, Well that looks like Edgar, but when he doesn't reply, he thinks, Well, maybe it was someone else. Right? So later on, Mr. Huntley and Sarsfield learned that Edgar Huntley was sleepwalking, so they then decide to work together to find Edgar. And they end up leaving the sisters at the neighbor. So this is why when the Indians attack the house, take the gun, you know, they didn't actually murder anyone. The sisters are are safe and, and the uncles in the woods looking for Edgar. Um so they went. Eventually, Huntley, Mr. Huntley, is eventually killed by some Indians, in fact, with his own gun, ironically. Um, there's a little bit of discussion here that they start to suspect Queen Mab as, as kind of the instigator of these, these attacks. But later on, they find Edgar presumed to be dead, and they leave him. And I think this is the moment in which, after he, he went back for the, the young, the captured girl... You know, he fought some more and then he kind of passed out and he woke up on top of this dead Indian. When they saw him with this dead Indian, they assumed he was dead too and, and, and left him there. Later on, though, Sarsfield gets in his head that maybe Edgar was still alive. So he starts going and searching for him and they, they cross paths a few more times. He also able to explain how the Walden grave letters got there. And basically he was responsible for bringing the Walden um, grave letters to this other house. So that's the story of Sarsfield and how he enters the tale. Basically, he was joined up with Mr. Huntley to try to find Edgar in the woods. And in the process, they end up battling a bunch of Indians. Right, And that explains why there's dead Indians on the, on the path that, that Edgar saw. So in chapter 26, though, we're, we're reintroduced to the question of, of Clithero, who's been out of the narrative really since the first half of the story. Right, he was the center of the first half of the story. Now he's he's been gone, but he reenters the story at the end. And when he asks about Clithero, Sarsfield gets really he starts to blanch about this, and he gets really upset after after hearing the name even being mentioned. And he knows the story of Clarice, and he knows of Mrs. Lorimer, and and he's got this bad blood with Clithero, who he thinks you know tried to kill Clarice, who is, um, you know, Miss Lorimer's. I guess, niece, how she tried to kill Miss Lorimer, his, 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 you know, his ex-lover. And, and so he doesn't want anything to do with Clithero, and, and he's got this uh, anger towards him. Now, as they're talking about this, there's a fight in the house, and an Indian kind of jumps, runs upstairs, jumps through a window, and they go back downstairs, and they see Clithero there, wounded and, and captive, it seems, but the Indians kind of fled. So he's dying, he's got these serious wounds, but Sarsfield refuses to aid him. Edgar, though, wants to help, and, and he's, he's got, he wants to stand up for Clithero, who he trusts by this point and believes, thinks he's unfortunate and unlucky, but, but you know thinks he's not a bad guy. So he's trying to urge Sarsfield to, to aid him, to help him out. And he talks about Clithero's guilt and remorse as something justifying him to you know, to innocence. Quote, but what of what that guilt which no penance can expiate? Had not Clithero's remorse been more than adequate to crimes far more deadly and enormous than this? This, however, was no time to argue with the passions of Sarsfield. Nothing but a re- repetition of Clithero's tale could vanquish his pre- possessions and mollify mortif- his rage. But this repetition was impossible to be given by me till a moment of safety and composure. So Clothero at the end of chapter 26, is, is in danger of dying. Um, now, in chapter 27, which is the final chapter in the story, although dying, Clithero is pleased with the life he's, he's led. He's got uh, Miss Loramere's manuscript. He also feels he's somewhat blessed because this manuscript has been given to him. In fact, it was Edgar who gave it to him at an earlier point when he found his sleeping body. Um, and he, then he speaks about how he was taken in by the Indians and, and how he got captured and, and injured. He was, of course, living out in the woods, too, for... You know, the middle part of the story, right? Kind of, um, that's where Edgar left him. So Edgar then goes and tells as much of the story as he can to Sarsfield, and, and again is trying to urge Sarsfield to use his medical knowledge, which he has some of, to try to help this poor man Clithero. Um, uh, eventually Sarsfield does indeed help. You know, his wounds aren't that bad, it turns out, and he's able to be patched up pretty quickly. Um, but that night Clithero vanishes. After being fixed up. And then we learn at the end of chapter 27 that the real instigator of this violence was that weird Indian woman living out on the frontier, Queen Map. She was also responsible for the murder of Walter Grave. And she gets captured. So that kind of brings an end to that, that whole the plot line that started the whole, whole novel. But we've seen how we've gone from a simple murder mystery, right? A relatively simple one and a weird experience of, of running into a sleepwalking gravedigger which is bizarre and weird enough, into a, a story of some very, very brutal uh, and heart-wrenching frontier, frontier violence that, that literally tears apart an entire family and, and community. Um, so the vast majority of the novel is this long letter then between, uh, from Edgar Huntley to his, to his fiance. But there's three short letters that, that kind of present an epilogue to the story, which, which add a level of creepiness to, to the tale. Now, in fact, we could stop right now. The story is well told. But uh, Brockton Brown kind of throws in a bomb, bombshell at the end with these three letters. So, the first letter is from Edgar Huntley to, to Sarsfield. And he warns Sarsfield that, that Mrs. Lorimer is in New York. And he also says that he thinks that Clitheroe may mean to kill her. Why would he do this? Well, he was driven by madness years ago back in Britain to try to kill Miss Lorimer. Right, And the fear here is that he may try to finish the job. So he's saying, you got to do what you can to keep Clithero from running into Mrs. Lorimir at any time. It's a very short letter, but it's basically this clinical warning. Uh, letter two is, again, it's, it's Edgar Huntley to Sarsfield. And Edgar explains how he visited Clithero in, an, in actually in the old hut of Old Deb. Of, of that Queen Mab, that woman who was was captured for those crimes, but the house was still there and, and Clithero has sort of taken up living there. And then he tells her about Lorimir's arrival and and he starts to really sense his madness. And Edgar Hunley at this point seems to finally realize just the depth of the madness that that uh, Clithero has has fallen into. Quote, my own embarrassment, confusion, and terror were inexpressible. His last words were incoherent. They denoted a t- tumult and vehemence of frenzy. They initiated his resolution to seek the presence of your wife. I had furnished a clue which could not fail to conduct him into her presence. What might not be dreaded from this interview? Clotharo is a maniac. This truth cannot be concealed. Your wife can, with difficulty, preserve her tranquility when this image occurs to her remembrance. What must it be when he starts up before her in his neglected in ferocious guise and armed with purposes, perhaps as terrible as those which had formerly led him to her secret chamber and her bedside. So that's th- those are the last words, basically, we get from Edgar Huntley is in this letter. Uh, the third letter we get is Sarsfield to Edgar, and he just kind of wraps up this sto- story. Um, basically, Clithero uh, has killed himself after being captured and sent to a mental hospital. I think, uh, he was actually on the river or the water somewhere and he jumped off the, 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 the boat. So sometime later he was captured as, as basically a violent madman. Um, but he kills himself and, and that's all we get. So uh, everyone ends up relatively happy after all the events of the story. Um, a lot of families are broken up and a lot of dead Indians. But I guess that's about as happy an ending as this tale can, can, can offer. Maybe it would have been a little bit nicer if Clotharo could have just been put into a mental hospital and given the treatment he needs. Uh, but, um, yeah, Brown doesn't like that. In fact, the same thing happens with Wheeland. when you have this murderous person. He has to die. Uh, he has to be killed. He can't just be put in jail. Um, so um, that does it. Uh, a really bizarre novel. I, I think it's my favorite of the three, uh, Wheeland. Uh, Arthur Mervin and, and Edgar Huntley, I think I like this one the most, especially on the reread. At first I would have said Wheelan, but this one, it's especially with the focus on the frontier violence and the broader Atlantic perspective of the, of the tale, I, I like it a lot more. Um, it's themes. I, I wrote down seven themes. There's probably a lot more, but I just want to highlight seven now as I wrap up my, my thoughts on the series of, of Charles Brockton Brown. Uh, one here is, of course, Indian Life. In the frontier, we have an image of Indians as a, as kind of a lost and declining people, uh, driven to to violence and, and a type of madness almost in, in in an effort to survive. I think there's parallels between Clothero and, and the Indians on the frontier here and this kind of irrational violence, maybe, but both uh, feeling trapped and and I guess trapped sort of by history right and and the events around them but almost by fate i think there's a lot of sympathy for for the indians despite the the portrayal of them not very sympathetically i I do think brown realizes that this violence was was on both sides and that this land has been stolen i I think the contradiction here is in the the view of the wildernesses, which i'll get to later on Uh, of course we have madness here many of our characters exhibit madness of course clothero is mad He's the best example of being clinically mad. But Edgar Huntley also engages in moments of madness and, and, and violence. And he talks about, when he thinks back on the moments of his violence, he sees them almost in terms of, of a type of insanity. So madness has sort of become the cover for, some, for, for various acts of violence in, in this novel. Yeah, but it seems to be able to fall to, to any number of characters, any number of people, not just the people who seem to be actually clinically explained. It's like phases of madness that these people seem to fall into. Because Clotharo seems perfectly normal for much of the novel. Um, but it, it, it seems to come in waves. Um, We've got, of course, frontier violence as a major theme here. I don't know how much more we need to say about it, but it, it takes up the bulk of the second half of the novel. It's just this persistent, ongoing frontier violence. It's back and forth. It's, it's brutal. It's, it's without any mercy. Yeah, it's, we saw this all, I guess, in um, James Fenimore Cooper's novels. But there's there's a whole lot of it here. This predates James Fenimore Cooper, of course. I wonder how what degree Cooper was influenced by Brown's portrayal of, of the Indians. Certainly, I think one thing Cooper is trying to do, if you listen back on my series on Cooper, is he's trying to be more sympathetic to the Indians than other fictional depictions. And this is one that certainly doesn't really... Give us much to work from in terms of a sympathetic portrayal i think all there is is like the macro uh, geopolitical analysis that brown has that this is really violence on both sides that said there's there's no no attempt to get introspective we don't know any of the characters names except queen Mab, who is presented as just a violent nutcase with her beast wolf dogs um you know too weird even for the indians so she has to stay behind one thing I, I think this book really contributes is is the story of, of violence against women. I think a feminist reading of Brown's novels would be very fruitful. And it's probably been done, but if it hasn't, you know that's a project for someone to work on. You know, there is again and again examples of violence against women in the these tales. Um, back from Wheeland, we got in Arthur Mervyn and and here too, especially with that um, Selby Farm, right? That, that uh, obviously that's an abusive relationship there and Indian violence against just against women as well is, is played with here we got Atlantic history even global history here we have characters involved with uh, the East India trading company we have characters who are sent to the Americas for transportation we have uh, transatlantic voyages and currency money financial transactions with the Waldengrave and Weymouth dispute that's never resolved by the way but that um, dispute over who controls that money is, has its roots in trade. Uh, so a little bit less so than in Arthur Mervin, but there's still a lot of, of Atlantic history at play in this particular story. Uh, crime is part of it. We have uh, the, the is most possibly a criminal. That could be. We have the crime of murder. We have the crime of, of massacres by, by both Indians and by whites. Um, not as much as part of the story as as perhaps with uh, with uh, Arthur Mervyn, which is really a crime novel. This one does have hints of that. And then finally, I, I think I want to highlight The Wilderness here. The Wilderness is almost a character in its own right in this story. It, it, there's so many of the chapters are built around set pieces of art of of edgar marching through the woods right experiencing this kind of empty wilderness of course it's not a wilderness we're reminded again and again that there are people living there and these pioneers are are invaders right and that invasion is met with a violent response from time to time right but the question i think we need to ask is whether there ever is a wilderness i mean maybe there's parts of the planet where no humans have ever touched but you know that's not that's not north america in the 18th and 19th century the frontier areas they're obviously not wildernesses they have been lived in you know there's a very different of style of agriculture a very different style of land ownership than what the europeans brought but they certainly were not pristine wildernesses without ever the touch of humanity right you know, humans had lived there. And I think it's the way we define wilderness. We need to maybe drop this term entirely, at least for most of, of the planet. I mean, again, there might be places where humans had never been, but there's not many of them. And certainly now in the age of, of climate change, there's no part of the planet that's that's not been hit by, by human hands. Uh, but nevertheless, we get efforts here to describe a wilderness. Um, in fact, a few points in the story, Brown actually writes that, you know, Edgar is maybe the first person, I was maybe the first person ever to touch foot in this this place. Of course, that's a perception that he has and a perception that many Americans had about uh, this empty continent. But it all became part of the justification for genocide and conquest, right? To to say it was empty and, never, you know, no one that mattered was really here, right? They didn't have a touch. They didn't affect the, they didn't transform this land into civilization. Therefore, they don't have a claim to it, right? That's was part of the justification for stealing the continent. So I guess that's it. There's probably other themes certainly here. But um, ah, fun novel. Really great. So I urge you to read Edgar Huntley. So if I had to rank these three novels, I would say Edgar Huntley is maybe the most visceral and powerful. Wieland is maybe the most intellectually satisfying in a way Arthur Mervin is is just so meandering and and kind of clunky I I can't fully recommend it but I do think it's got a nice kind of the heart of it is like a nice crime novel almost a hard-boiled detective story about a young man swept up in in the world of crime but beyond that I, I think it's a little bit too ponderous for for most readers so that does it um for Charles Brockton Brown Check him out if you haven't, a lot of people don't know him, he's, you know, I don't think he's taught in literature classes too much, but he's really is America's first professional novelist. I mean, there are other writers before him, but he's the first to really try to make a profession as, as a novelist. Well, what's coming up? Well, what's coming up is, is back to Herman Melville, so we're going to read uh, Pierre first, so read the first parts of Pierre if you have it, it's a weird one. Uh, I don't even know where to start with this one. Um, it's not a sea fiction. It's not like the other Melville novels we've looked at. It's something completely really different, but a lot to say about it. Uh, then we'll read Ezrael Potter, which is kind of his revolutionary war novel. I mean, back, he's kind of going back to mainstream after Pierre was just ravaged by the critics. In fact, one, I, th- I think it was like in New York, some kind of press, some kind of newspaper in New York, just basically wrote the headline that Melville's gone nuts or Melville's crazy. And the evidence for that is Pierre. So after that, he writes a more traditional novel called Israel Potter, which I think is a, if I remember, it's about spies in the American Revolution. Or something about the, I mean, it's basically a panoramic of, of the American Revolution. Then we'll look at his, his final novel, The Confidence Man, uh, his masquerade. Uh, which is kind of almost like a 19th century, or I mean a 20th century novel almost in in its kind of modernistic approach. It's really fascinating. Then we have his stories, uh, the Piazza tales are, I mean, it's most famous, but he had other stories that are are here as well. Some prose, and then his posthumous novel, Billy Budd. So um, we're going to spend a lot of time with Herman Melville, probably 14 episodes or so before we get through all that stuff. But the first four will be on Pierre, and I'm really looking forward to that. Um, it's just such a weird, bizarre novel. So anyways, that's it. Uh, if you have any thoughts about Charles Brockton Brown, let me know. Leave them below. I will try to get back to you. I love hearing from you. Um, if uh, You can also send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Um, but I'll do it for now I'll see you next time when we'll start up with, with Melville again and then specifically with Pierre Faces come out of the rain When you're strange No one remembers your name When you're strange When you're strange When you're strange, when you're strange, when you're strange